Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're looking at verses 21 through 24. And as you're turning there, just reflecting upon this passage, it, it, it is an, an unfortunate reality that the doctrine of God's unconditional election often results in pride rather than joy. Maybe you've heard of the cage stage. We've talked a little bit about the cage stage, the idea that you finally understand Reformation theology and you kind of need to be put into a cage because that's all you can talk about and, and you can be arrogant and prideful about it. That's oftentimes, unfortunately, what happens. We understand something of God's electing grace in our life and then we use it like a weapon against everyone we come in, into contact with. Jesus had every intention of using this doctrine to fill his disciples with joy, to give them an overflowing joy in salvation. And so we'll see that from this passage. Obviously, the, the past three sermons that we've looked at from chapter 10 have been dealing with um, how Jesus appointed the 72 disciples, sent them out, and it was the other disciples, not the 12, but another 72 disciples that he sent out. And, um, to basically bring a message of peace to the surrounding cities. And he was, they were to proclaim peace, but they were also to warn those cities that rejected them. Um, and the disciples came back re, um, really rejoicing in the subjection of demonic spirits, and they receive a, a not-so-subtle rebuke from Jesus, that they were rejoicing in a temporary thing. They weren't rebuked in the sense that it was wrong for them to recognize their, that they did have authority. God had given them that authority. Jesus commends them in that way. He says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and he affirms that he had given them that authority there. Um, he says, behold, I have given you authority, in verse 19, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the heavenly reward that you have. And then he goes on to sort of model rejoicing for them. We have in this passage what his own rejoicing. The authority that they had been given was good, but it was only a temporary blessing. They should have had their hearts set towards their heavenly blessing, which cannot pass away. So again, rejoicing is once again the subject, but here it's Jesus rejoicing in the work of salvation, and more specifically, Jesus is rejoicing in the work of salvation. Uh, sorry, rejoicing in the authority that he has been given to reveal the, the, um, the Father to anyone he chooses to reveal him. So it's, it's, it's a, it is the work of salvation, but it's specifically his electing grace that he's rejoicing in. All authority is derived from God. All authority returns to God. So this temporary authority that the disciples had received on their mission was nothing in, compa in comparison to the authority of the Son to reveal the Father to them. Um, and, and so the fact that they know Jesus means that they know the Father. And in the big scheme of things, really nothing else matters. Nothing else is more rewarding, more joyful 
than thinking about that. So the joy of our salvation ought to overflow when we realize that salvation is the result of a sovereign God. It is the work of a sovereign God. We are the recipients of that grace that should do nothing but fill us with joy, the furthest thing from a prideful spirit. Well, before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Once again, we can open your word and learn something from it, that we can sit under the preaching of your word. And I pray that you would open our, our hearts to this text, that we would be changed by it. Open this text to us, that we would understand it rightly, and then that we would apply it to ourselves in such a way that would bring you glory and honor. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, and soften our hearts to believe it. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Amen. This is God's holy word. So verse 21, we consider this rejoicing in revelation. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is how Jesus rejoices. He, he prays beginning by addressing his Father. I thank you, Father. And some have said, oh, Jesus is so intimate that he's, it's like he's calling out to his daddy. Um, but it's, it's a misnomer to think that Jesus prayed with language that's equivalent to saying daddy. That, that sounds precious and intimate. And in one sense, we, we, we don't want to imply that Jesus was not close in communion to his father. He was. Um, but it's misleading because the, the word here... Abba was the language that all children used to address their father, regardless of their age. So even adults called their fathers Abba. Um, and so it, it, it does imply a greater intimacy than most of the rabbis were willing to, to speak in terms of that kind of intimacy. But it's probably not the kind of intimacy that, like, daddy doesn't quite fit with that language. So the term translated little children uh, broadly applies to children from the age of infancy all the way up to like when they're learning the elementary principles of the world. The same word is found there uh, about children in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. So sort of infancy up to elementary age. But it's, it's, regardless, it's implying a, a dependence, a, a, a level of dependence upon authorities that have been given in, in your life. Your parents, your teachers, there's, there's not a lot of of knowledge to work with at this age, right? They're, they're completely dependent upon their tutors or their parents. 
They must trust the authorities over them because they lack the understanding to have any kind of self-confidence. And so if the disciples had any recognition of the Messiah's mission that had been given to them, it was not due to any wisdom or level of education on their part. And they had received their revelation as a gift from God. And so they recognized their need to learn from Christ. They didn't come with arrogance like the wise and understanding Pharisees and scribes. They didn't come saying, we already really know everything. We just want to hear what you're saying and see if it's consistent with what we believe. They didn't have that kind of arrogance. They were humble in their understanding, and they did not presume to know everything already. And this is a principle that we should always keep in mind. It's always appropriate to have this kind of humility when we come to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn from him. We ought to come to church with the mindset of a humble tax collector who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisees uh, are the ones who come to church projecting an air of distinction from everyone else, presuming that his works will be rewarded by God. And, and setting himself apart from others. So we may not project that arrogance of the Pharisees. None of us would put ourselves in that category or think, uh, you know, point to a particular person and say, that's the Pharisee in our midst. But how often do we find ourselves comparing our own works, comparing uh, our own level of understanding to others within the church? I, I do... I do see a tendency there, right, that we recognize that, that we're not perfect, but we do feel superior to most of those that are around us, right? There's at least something to recognize there. This attitude of superiority is certainly common to man, but we should fight it at every level within the church, and it should be far from our midst when we gather together. The knowledge that these disciples had received the privilege of revelation brought Jesus tremendous joy. We know a a lot about the sorrows of our Savior. He was a man of sorrows. We know um, on three different accounts we have Jesus weeping or sorrowful. Do you know that this is the only time we read about Jesus rejoicing? It's the only account. It doesn't mean he didn't have joy or that he didn't express joy or have experiences in other accounts that, that could have been mentioned, but this is the only account in all four Gospels where, the, where, where Jesus is, is specifically said to rejoice. That doesn't mean, again, that he was some morose individual. He didn't mope through life, but his heart was frequently heavy with the weight of his mission. However, on this occasion... And for the very reasons that he explains, he was, his, his joy was, was so evident that it was recorded for us. Jesus was filled with delight upon the successful return of the 72 disciples. So first of all, think about this. Is it not rewarding to know that your Savior delights to see your participation in his kingdom purposes? He sees the 72 return doing much of what he has commissioned all of us as his church to do, proclaiming the message of peace. And they return successful, and they're excited, 
and, and he is now filled with joy, not necessarily for the exact same things that they were rejoicing in, but he's filled with joy at the thought of these disciples carrying out the mission that he had given him, and at the thought that, that God had given him this ability to reveal his father to whom he chooses. So he not only sees their, their salvation, right? He sees them, their, them opening up their hearts to God and, and coming in faith uh, to know him, but they also, he also sees them walking in obedience. He sees them fulfilling the calling that he's given them. So it's rewarding to know that our Savior delights to see that participation in his purposes. And when we rely upon him to accomplish his purposes, he gets the glory and the joy. He rejoices in us and over us. Our faith and works, although they're filled with mixed motives and misappropriated joy, bring delight to our Lord and Savior. Not only that, the opening of this, this passage, verse 21, speaks of all three persons of the Trinity. Did you catch that? In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. So the Son is thanking his Father in the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit, for the revealing the message of peace, which the 72 had just returned from delivering uh, to, you know, as little children to little children who possibly, you know, who were responding in faith. Jesus experiences joy and he expresses that joy in prayer that is characterized as in the Holy Spirit and addressed to the Father. Father. So there is a Trinitarian aspect to true joy. Um, the joy of the Son revealed the will and joy of the Father and Spirit. So as we think about how rewarding it is to recognize Jesus rejoicing in our salvation and rejoicing in our obedience to his call, we also can see God in all three forms, all three persons of the Trinity uh, rejoicing. This ought to enhance our sense of privilege all the more. So in addition to rejoicing in Revelation, Jesus also, and more specifically, uh, he was rejoicing in election, as I've said. He was rejoicing in this specific revelation that he had been handed by the Father to reveal the Father to whom he chooses. So John Calvin points out two things from this verse in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Calvin says, first, God has the power to reveal the gospel to everyone. The fact that some reject God is not due to any lack of authority or power on God's part. Second, the fact that some express faith while others remain hardened is due to the authority of free election that has been given to the Son. Jesus draws some to himself and passes by others. You didn't choose God because you had more wisdom than your neighbor. I mean, this is a very clear description of unconditional election. God chooses uh, based uh, on his, his own will. It's an unconditional election, not anything that we've done to set ourselves apart. 
So this is expressed all the more clearly by revealing himself to those who are not wise and powerful. That's, that's why he elaborates on that. I, I thank you that you did not reveal these things to the wise and learned, those who, are, who have great wisdom and power. If only the wise came to God, then the assumption would be that only those who have enough knowledge or who have gained enough skill could really grasp the things of God. It would be available to the elites alone, but instead God shows no partiality to anyone. Man contributes absolutely nothing to his justification, so anything he could add would only obscure God's glory. Anything that you recognize in yourself for that justification is a taking, a stealing of glory from God. So we should be careful to point out that Jesus is speaking of a particular kind of knowledge here. Because there is a sense in which everyone knows something about God. They know there is a God, as we could read in Psalm 19 and Romans 1. There's this general revelation right, that is experienced by everyone. So all people know there is a God, but they suppress that truth. However, knowing that God exists and then knowing the God who exists are two different things. The first requires general revelation, but the second requires special revelation through his word or from, God's, from, from the word of God, right? from Jesus or a prophet. Someone has to reveal the word of God to you in a special way for there to be saving, uh, a saving grace, a saving knowledge. So this special revelation is required to know God intimately. In order to come to the Father in this special way requires the invitation of the Son. That's what he is acknowledging here. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. These same disciples heard Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. They know the Father because they know the Son, John 14, 6 through 7. And so when you come to know Jesus, we also come to know the Father. And upon our union with the Son through faith, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 3, which includes his cho choosing of us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, and includes our predestination for adoption, Ephesians 1, 5. So very clearly, this is an unconditional election of God to choose those upon whom he would pour out this spiritual blessing. In order to know the Father, we must rightly know the Son. It is not possible to know the Father while rejecting the Son, as so many Jews had done. It's not possible to have a relationship with God and reject his Trinitarian nature as so many modern cults have done whether you're talking about Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, they do not understand, they do not know the Father because they do not know him, they do not know the Son rightly. So his application concludes, really, uh, given directly to the disciples. He, it's as if he turns to the side and privately speaks to them. He had been giving all of this directly to everyone, I mean, uh, speaking openly about even unconditional election speaking openly about that to the crowd, but now he turns 
privately and speaks to his disciples. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to know what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the disciples are blessed rather than cursed. Woe to the unrepentant cities, blessed are you for what you've seen. They are blessed because they have been privileged to see and hear the Messiah directly. They experience by sight what Abraham and Moses and Elijah had to look forward to in faith. And they enjoyed in person what we must enjoy by faith in their testimony. So Sproul said, but there will come a time when we will see him face to face. We will hear him with our ears and that blessing will be ours and his joy will be fulfilled in us. And this is a joy that we will experience unhindered for all eternity. So the only proper response to having the knowledge of this divine truth is gratitude, right? which is expressed through sacrificial love and service. Did you notice the, the parable that follows this passage? He's talking about rejoicing in this electing grace, and then he follows it up. So, so upon listening to this teaching of Jesus, as I said, remember he's, he was talking really to the crowd for verses 21 and 22, and then he turns privately to his disciples, and maybe to interrupt this conversation he's having with the disciples, a lawyer stands up from the group and asks a question to test him. So listening to the teaching of Jesus, this lawyer stands up to test Jesus with a question about eternal life. And Jesus responds by providing the parable of the Good Samaritan. In other words, those who have been chosen by God will respond by living and loving sacrificially for others. And that is an, an appropriate response to the grace that we have received, is, is living that, that faith out in love to God and neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... <clears throat> this time, again, to reflect upon the work of redemption. Lord, it's, um, it's, it's the theme of your word. And we should never tire of considering our own salvation, uh, the work that you've done in our lives, and to consider more facets of that salvation maybe the, the work of sanctification that you're working out in us even now as we're growing and maturing and more and more learning to put sin to death, to put off the old man and to put on the new self that we have received in Christ. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to consider this truth and to respond with such gratitude and rejoicing Lord, help us to learn from Jesus and learn from his joy, the things that he focused his joy upon, that we would be filled with joy and not pride. It is so easy in an intellectual community, a community of people who love to learn and read and study, to be puffed up and to take the, the, these incredible truths and doctrines and to use them 
for our own glory, to use them to build ourselves up. Lord, help us to rejoice in this truth, to be filled with joy that overflows to others and, and really has so much gratitude that we'd be patient with each other. We'd be compassionate towards others. We'd be filled with a love that would respond like the Good Samaritan to our neighbor in need. We would show no partiality based upon wealth or status. Lord, help us to honor you with the salvation you've given us and the calling you've placed upon our lives. May we be faithful stewards of that call. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.